All right. Well, uh, thanks, Sam. Thanks, Cam, for leading us. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Excellent. And it gives me great privilege to introduce you to Dr. Alan Meyer. Dr. Alan was with us this morning. If you weren't able to be here this morning, I heard one of the best messages on love I've ever heard. It was called The Mystery of Love. And for those of us here, we enjoyed it, right? It was a fantastic message. You can get online as soon as you get home tonight and check it out. Um, I guess a way of introduction, Alan. Uh, Alan, for some of us, would be very familiar with Alan and his ministry. In fact, some of us wouldn't be familiar with Alan at all. I was on the receiving end of Alan's ministry just a few years ago when I participated in one of your courses called Valiant Man. I encourage every young and older man to participate in a course like that. Of course, we've got Man to Man, which is just about to get up uh, underway in a week's, week's time or so. Isn't it a couple of weeks? Two, two weeks? On the 23rd, and so you're more than welcome to be a part of that. And so, uh, Alan's ministry and Helen's, by the way, welcome Helen, it's great to have you here. Uh, as, as ministry has re- reached most corners of the world, in fact, and uh, they've been doing some uh, ministry. In fact, they're about to head along, uh, I think, uh, country Victoria this week in, uh, in Victoria there, and uh, ministering with us this weekend. We had a men's breakfast yesterday morning, and uh, as I said, some would know you, some wouldn't. Alan, you are a communicator, you're a husband a uh, grandfather, a, a father, and also a Hawthorne supporter. All, all that's true. all true, I confess. <laughs> and Hawthorne are actually playing here this Thursday. Night. I'm taking my son along to see Hawthorne play my team. What are the chances, do you think, Kobe, of uh, the bottom team of last year's uh, AFL uh, round uh, um, season uh, beating <laughs> the top... Well, I, I wouldn't give you a big chance, but I think it's very game of you, very, very brave of you. Well done. Yeah, thank you. Thank and you. to take your son to a Hawthorne match is one of the finest things you could ever do as a father. <laughs> Alan, what's that one thing? Let's just go there. Just some, some short answers before we get serious, if that's okay. Some short answers to these few questions. One thing that, um, you would, that would surprise people here, one thing about you that would surprise people. Um, I love to cook. And I'd probably do one of the nicest uh, four-quarter lamb roasts that you'll ever encounter in your life. Eat it just with a fork. Don't need a knife. Beautiful stuff, mate. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess speaking of food, let's go to the next one then. If you could have dinner with two famous people, who would that be? Yeah, I've often thought about that, and I think I'd rather go with. I'd rather uh, just go with you and me, mate. Um, <laughs> but um, I guess of all the people I'd love dinner with, I'd just love one dinner with Jesus and ask him some questions so that then I could be up here and answer some of the questions a little more authoritatively. But uh, I'm I'm not sure I I care about meeting really famous people at dinner. I just like meeting you. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, you've travelled, as I said, you've travelled the world pretty Mm -hmm. much. Top travel experience? Great question, that. Uh, Probably Nagaland. Um, I was once invited to speak in Nagaland, but we didn't have approval. So they smuggled me in, and uh, then I was arrested on the third day and um, I thought I might go to jail. But they, I got out of the country later that day. But um, Nagaland, one of those, uh, it's a protectorate in India where 16 million people live there, 16 warring tribes that used to be headhunting tribes, 95% of them are Christians. Uh, it totally changed that entire country and its way of, of uh, relating. They were all headhunters. They became followers of Jesus and just an entire nation was changed mm. by a, a revival. Amazing thing. 
Wow, all right. Um, many of us here would have personal heroes in life, people we look up to, somebody of your age and stage of life. Do you have a personal hero? Yeah, I do. And probably my senior pastor, Hal Oxley, uh, he's 99 years of age, still preaching once a month, and he's uh, in the church that he founded and now is simply part of. Um, he was a warrior during the Second World War, the youngest colonel. He was on MacArthur's planning staff for the retaking of the Pacific and I was his youth pastor and um, over the years he's been a wonderful personal friend and um, uh, he's, my, he's one of my heroes. Mm. Mm. Um, you've been on a lot of planes in life, how, how do you pass the time away on these long flights? You mentioned it a little bit this morning. but Terraplanes, you know, jet, jet travel, especially international travel, is about as exciting as a twisted ankle. Uh, <laughs> unless you can get into business class or first class. If you're in economy class, the only way to survive it is with a book you're really interested in and you just keep moving around the cabin and sit different places, wherever you can find a place and you read. Uh, if you're in business class, you can watch movies and sleep. First class is even better. That's happened accidentally a couple of times. First class, I could travel every day. But uh, if you're going to be in cattle class, you've just got to have a good book or you're going to perish. Mm -hmm. All right. Um... I don't know if you watched it on a plane or at home. Recent movie that you watched that you enjoyed? Yeah, I did. In fact, uh, I went and saw Revenant. And um, I've seen, I guess you see most of the, the, the top ones as soon as they come out. Because uh, movies are, are, really, are really a lot of fun. And often they can be very provoking. Um, the uh, movie recently, I think that was perhaps the most provoking, was Suffragette. And you realise how different life for women is today, it's still got a long way to go uh, because I think being a woman is dangerous and when you realise how, how women suffered just to, to be given the privilege of voting about their own life is quite extraordinary. The, the way in which uh, women have been treated through history is really, uh, it, it, when you see it portrayed it's really an eye opener and quite distressing. I left the theatre, I wanted to go and punch a man but I couldn't find anyone small enough, so I'd, I'd go. <laughs> It'd be interesting to hear Helen's answer to this next question, but uh, we all have strengths and weaknesses. What do you think your greatest strength and greatest weakness is? Um, I, I think I'm still around because I will tell the truth. At the end of the day, I'll be, I'll be honest. Um, if I've made a mistake, I'll, I'll, I'm willing eventually, sometimes we're all reluctant to tell the truth, but uh, eventually I'll say, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? And that's, that's, at times kept me from the arrogance of isolation. Mm. And as a result, I, I'm still here. Mm. Mm. Great. And last question before we get, get into it. Um, what scares you? Do you have a phobia to anything? Uh, I hate spiders. No, you do. Mm. I got out of a car at 40 kilometres an hour one day because uh, I... <laughs> There was a huntsman sitting about here on my Volkswagen roof. I got out of the passenger door while the car was still moving. And um, I, I, I'm not as bad as I was, but um, I, one day I want to talk to Jesus about spiders and, and say, I, I'm not as sure that was a good idea. Mm. You know? Well, let's get into it. We're uh, in the hot seat with Dr. Alan Meyer, and uh, we've got some questions here. We might have a chance to open to the floor. We might not, yeah. all right? But uh, we've got some questions here, and um, 
Uh, a couple of years ago when Alan visited us, we had 10 minutes in the hot seat, and that was in the morning service, and I thought, we've, we've got to do this again with Alan, we've really got to do this again, and so uh, we learned from that, and we are, we are here now, 30 minutes with uh, Dr. Alan in the hot seat, and the first question, I think we've got them on the slides here, the first question goes a little bit like this, have we got that slide? Here we go. The world's getting less predictable, less safe, I mean, you think about it at the moment, with terrorism and the extreme weather patterns the growth of extreme religions, as well as phenomenal growth, by the way, if you don't know, of Christianity across the world at an amazing rate, uh, but not in necessarily in um, first world countries. So my question is this, yeah, Alan, what's going on? Yeah, well, I grew up in a church, well, I didn't grow up, I grew up in a Lutheran church. We never talked about end times because um, back a hundred years or so ago, more than a hundred years ago, the Lutheran Church in Australia split over end times theology and they decided it was therefore a dangerous no-go zone and I grew up therefore in a church that never talked about end times. Then I became a youth pastor in a church that never stopped talking about end times and my senior pastor used to preach that Jesus would be back in 20 years and that was back in 1970-something and um, there came a point where even he realised how funny that was and he would say, you know, someone just asked me, I thought you said Jesus was coming back in 20 years and he said yeah that's true and I still believe it so he just kept moving the 20 years out there um, but the, the reality is at some point there will be a conclusion to world history and um, the Bible is very clear about that it will be the second coming of Jesus and it's only been in the last few months that I've felt this stirring on the inside to begin to prepare some messages that relate to uh, the end times in which not you don't want to scare people and be constantly raising the issue, you know, it's coming to an end, it's coming to an end. Um, but the reality is it will come to an end. And there's enough in the Bible that every person who cares ought to know about some of the big issues that uh, will be part of world history. Um, even in the, early, in the earliest centuries of the, ch of the Christian church, there was a discipleship document that was called the Didache, and they wanted every new believer to know this stuff before they got baptised. And if you read it, it's very stirring. Most of it is about the Sermon on the Mount, but the back half of it is about end times. And what the early church wanted everybody to know uh, in, in signing up as a follower of Jesus was that you need to know that Antichrist will come. Now, Antichrist is already in the world. I mean, the, this... this replacement for Christ and resistance to Christ is everywhere but it will culminate in what the Bible calls the man of sin and I often ask myself in a fractured world where you can't even stop a war in Syria which isn't that big a nation and it's surrounded by nations that want the war to stop and they have the military power to actually you know just fix it to stop it Every time we try to stop it, we seem to create something worse. But nobody seems to be able to fix it. And the world is growing increasingly distressed about the fact that we face massive problems that we seem to have no capacity to fix because of the fragmentation of national, national identities and leaderships that can never seem to agree on anything. Um, the Bible says there will come a time when someone will emerge who will say to the world, I can fix your problems. And there will be such an attractiveness 
to the idea of giving up freedoms in order to be able to say at last somebody's got the authority to fix problems that they'd be willing to do it but it'll have a tremendous price tag attached to it and that is conformity. Uh, we're already seeing the battle, the battle lines drawn, the, the increasing concern in the world over religion and what faith does when people malapply mal it because um, for, for the sake of you don't believe what I believe then I'll blow you up or I'll murder you um, and increasingly it raises a great fear about anybody having a sincere and life-changing religious conviction and I do think it's important to recognize that um, if the end is going to come there will be it's the Bible, Jesus called them birth pains. And anyone who's been there for birth, you know, contractions come in cycles and they get stronger and they get stronger until birth takes place. He called the end times, uh, these are the beginning of birth pains. And I think what we're seeing are birth pains. And without wanting to say, you know, within 20 years Jesus will be back because people have said this for a long time. But the fact is that at some point there will be a, uh, a culmination of the issues of, if you want to put it on the list, and I'm not, the concern over climate change, the concern over refugees, the concern over insoluble war, the concern over, over poverty that never seems to be capable of being addressed. There's a whole range of problems. The insecurity of, uh, of religious systems that, let, that cause people to just create tragic disruption. And there will come a moment when there will be a human solution that is actually inspired from a very dark place, from hell. And those of us who are followers of Jesus need to recognise Jesus will not come until all of those prophetic utterances have unfolded. And if we have to live through them, it would be really helpful to understand what the big building blocks are. And instead of living in constant fear, to be living in increasing commitment to be hanging on to Jesus and the kingdom of heaven and the coming the coming kingdom, the coming kingdom of the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven uh, has come, it will come, it is coming and it will ultimately come. And in its fullest extent, it's what we were born for. Uh, we may have to live through some difficult moments in order to be, to be part of it. Mm. Good answer? Yeah. yeah? Let's go to the next one. The question is in regards to, here we go, the suffering one. Uh, unpack the, your thoughts on suffering. If God is all-loving and he's all-powerful, why does he allow tragedy and suffering. Yeah, and it's the, it is probably, this I think is the biggest issue. Um, I think it's the biggest issue that non-Christians face. Uh, last week I went to the funeral of Chris Guglielmucci, the pastor who was killed by a lightning strike in um, Geelong. Uh, Adelaide. In Adelaide, sorry, in Adelaide, I kept thinking. Yeah, I don't know why I thought Geelong. Um, in Adelaide. And I went to Adelaide for his funeral. 3,000 people gathered there to bury a man who's serving God with a lovely wife and four little kids and just 39 years old. And you think, what the heck is that about? And there just are no words. I played golf uh, the following day uh, in Melbourne and I played with a bunch of pagans. And the first thing I did was we were sitting around before we went out to play and I said I went to a funeral yesterday. And I saw that there's one guy who calls me GB. That's me. He calls me GB, God botherer. Um, that's his title for me because I'm a minister, I'm a God-botherer. And he was raised in a Catholic background. Um, his Catholic background has made him highly cynical 
of any religious perspective. So he treated me like a dirtbag when I first got involved in the group, but over the month, over the year or so that we've played golf together, we've developed a respect. And uh, when I said that, I saw the pained look on his face. I saw the pained look. And then with that pained look on his face, he just said, well, how, how do you live with that? And he was asking that question. How can you be a follower of God, a follower, trust in Jesus, trust in a loving God, and you just watch that buried? And my answer is, I have no answer for that. But you see, here's the, here is the way I approach life. The Bible um, has many books in it in which I, I did, and it's one of my favorite messages. I have a message I call Complaints Against God because it's one of the most, uh, one of the biggest issues you have to deal with in walking with God and it's one of the biggest issues you have to deal with in helping people to consider a relationship with God. Why the suffering? What, don't tell me he loves me with all of this stuff going on around. And uh, I am reminded that this is not a new thing, that the book of Habakkuk is a complaint against God. Psalm 73 is a complaint against God. The entire book of Job is a complaint against God. Why don't you fix things faster than you do? And this is worthy of a whole, like not only many messages, it's worthy of at least a whole night. And I'm going to just give you a very brief response to it. And that is this. You have to, at some point, be prepared to say, what did Jesus think? Because I'm a follower of Jesus. And if Jesus did not think that this reflected badly on his father, then there was, uh, Jesus must, must have believed that this suffering had nothing to do with the heart of the father and everything to do with an absolutely essential journey from life to everlasting life. And I am satisfied that the God who is smart enough to be able to manufacture DNA understands the problem. He understands the problem. And it doesn't fuss him to allow history to unfold as it does because in the thinking of the most, of, of a mind beyond any mind we could ever imagine, in God's heart, he believes that the greatest outcome, the greatest eternal blessing will, by, will be by allowing people to walk down pathways in which suffering is part of their journey. And I've come to this conclusion. God has an ace up his sleeve. You and I get so upset because in our focus in life, we feel like having a happy life is what God ought to be focused on, and he's not. God is not focused on your happy life. God is focused on sharing his holiness with you, Hebrews chapter 12. And as a result, we get very angry with God because we have a very list, different list of priorities. But the ace up God's sleeve is called the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. Your life in, in comparison, this life in comparison, is like, you could hardly, how big, how small, this compared to a 5,000 mile journey. Um, eternity is everything and your life is probation. Everything hangs on this life. And God's in God's wisdom, God allows things to happen in his wisdom that his power could easily confront and easily eradicate.
And if you get angry with God over that, it demonstrates that you're still struggling with the idea of his fatherhood. Because God is a father. And as a father, he has, it's like the kid who says to his dad, I don't want to go to school, dad. I don't want to go to school. Why not, son? Well, because dad, all I want to be is a cowboy, dad. Just want to be a cowboy. Cowboys don't need calculus, dad. Cowboys don't need geography, dad. Cowboys don't need this. All I need is a gun and a horse, dad. And dad says, oh, forgive me. You know, I didn't realize, you know, by all means, stay home from school. I'll see if I can arrange a horse. I mean, the father's going to say, son, that's a... That's an inadequate view of your future because I think there's more in you. You like cowboys good, but I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go to school whether you like it or not because there may be more in you than a cowboy and a father sees a bigger picture than the immediate, I just want to do this. And in the sufferings of the world, you are encountering the, we are face to face with the tragedy of alienation from God and in his wisdom. God thinks the greatest outcome is not in trying to put band-aids or to fix and make your life happy. It is to call on you to walk with him in faith through a minefield because the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting is God's ultimate destiny for you. And since Jesus really believed that he could, in the Garden of Gethsemane, say, into your hands I commend my spirit, I've just decided that I'm going to trust God no matter what unfolds in my life. But I do understand the complaint and I understand how troubling it is for people. And that short answer is inadequate, but you need longer to really deal with it appropriately. Mm, Another good answer? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to the third question. We're doing well. Let's go to that one. Here we go. Is it arrogant to claim that Christianity sorry, claim Christianity as the only true religion. Yeah. Well, you've got to decide whether you believe Jesus or not. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, did he know what he was talking about or didn't he? See, again, and I mentioned this in my message this morning, the, the average person has no idea what their biggest problem is. They have no idea what their biggest problem is. And the greatest problem we face is to be reckoned, is how do I reconcile with a holy God? How does a sinful human being reconcile to a holy God? No religion in the world deals with this except for Christianity. Um, All religions deal with moral failure and have ideas about either moral improvement or getting ready for hell. God saw that the greatest... It is not easy for God to forgive sin. See, the average individual never thought that through. That when you you are the person in the universe responsible for the integrity of heaven holiness is everything the moment god allows any unforgiven sin to pass into heaven heaven will become hell and the devil has every right to be part of our future just as he's damaged and destroyed that our past and i'm so glad that there is a god who holds holiness at such a high level that the only thing he thinks that the wages of sin is death, but then loves so profoundly that he is prepared to confront his own holiness by taking care of the issue himself. And when you come to the mystery of Easter, you are looking at Christmas, you're looking at the miracle or the mystery of incarnation, God taking on a human body. But then at Easter, 
you, come, you confront the most, dis- the most disturbing of all realities, that God is so holy that not a single sin will ever enter into heaven uh, undealt with, and no person will ever enter into heaven without being cleansed of every sin they've ever committed. God will never permit heaven to become hell. There, without the shedding of blood, there will never be the forgiveness of sins. And this re- Christianity is the only religion that deals with this issue. How is my sin ever going to be dealt with by a holy God? And every other alternative that puts Jesus to one side and replaces it with anything is a total affront to the fatherhood of God who gave his own son because without Jesus Christ, the shedding of his innocent blood would make it impossible for God to forgive anybody. No one could ever be forgiven if it hadn't been for the incarnation, the substitution, and the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Once you understand that, the idea of any alternative to Christ is ridiculous. It's just impossible. And I'll never forget the moment I read that in a theology book. I'd never even thought of it, that the biggest issue wasn't um, helping me in my life. It was, it was God's problem of how does a holy God ever forgive? And he made a way. He paid, it's called propitiation. He took the wrath upon himself. You remove Jesus from that process and you stand before a holy God and you get to deal with your own failures yourself. And um, I have no intention of going down that pathway because uh, the soul that sins shall die. Without the shedding of blood, there shall never be the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus Christ is the only sinless sacrifice that has ever come from heaven in order to open a doorway uh, for, for us from hell to heaven. And so arrogant, no, it's just a matter of understanding the nature of dealing with everlasting holiness or eternal holiness. And once you get a grip on why Jesus Christ had to take on a human body and why substitution is so absolutely inescapably necessary, then coming up with any alternative to Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection is just a farce. And so I, you could, as arrogant as you like, uh, there's only one way. And the, uh, the apostles put it with this way. For there is only one name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. It's not arrogant. It's simply observing an inescapable truth about the essential nature of forgiveness. Mm, yeah, wow. Thank you so much. Let's go to the next one. We're up to uh, question number four. Here we go. A friend of mine, there you go, said Jesus never existed. How do you answer something like that? Well, here is a person who has no idea what history means. And the, the, the reality is, um, I, I just went through a very interesting study on the issue of Exodus because, the, again, this, this claim is being made. It, you go back another 1,500 years before Jesus, and the question is, did Moses ever exist? Was there ever an Exodus from Egypt to Israel? And there are experts that say there's no evidence that, to say that the Exodus ever took place. There was no Moses. Um, Eventually, however, these these nonsense statements give you no capacity to explain reality that's here right now. Uh, Where did the Christian church come from? I mean, it's here, it's all over the world. If Jesus never existed, how did this ever happen? Well, there is a reasonable explanation, and it's in the Bible. 
that Jesus did live. He died, he rose from the dead and then bumped into a guy called Paul who was persecuting Christians, had an extraordinary encounter with him, turned him into the greatest evangelist that the world has probably ever known. And the only reason Christianity exists is because Jesus existed and impacted all these people and has never stopped. The only reason Islam exists is because Muhammad exists. The only reason Buddhism exists is because Buddha existed. You show me a single um, world movement that exists where it had no often had no beginning. They all had their beginning. And people who say this kind of stuff are so stupid. They're so ignorant of history. And um, the how do you know Julius Caesar ever existed? People don't realise that the moment you say that, it's like saying we don't know anything. We don't know whether, we don't know that Africa ever existed until yesterday. I mean, history is demonstrated on a, on a, whole, bu- a whole bunch of, um, of uh, elements that you can point to, whether it's stones in the ground or whether it's writings from a certain uh, age or whether it's uh, influences and, and uh, second and, and, and third hand references. And when it comes to the life of Jesus, I was uh, again talking to a scholar about this not long ago, and he said, in history, if you can find a single reference to an individual, then it is likely he existed, and if you can find two references to it, it is incontrovertible. How do you know Herodotus ever existed? Well, because there are references to Herodotus from more than two um, points of reference. So in history, that's an absolute proof that Herodotus existed. How do you know Julius Caesar existed? Because he appears in a number of, of different sources of reference. So if there's more than, if there's one, it's likely he existed. If there's two, uh, it is certain he existed. When it comes to Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, there are thousands, I mean literally thousands, of letters and references from both opponents as well as proponents, people who are for him and people who are against him. So when people say something like Jesus never existed, you just have to say, you're an idiot. And the reality is you, ha- you know nothing about history and you know nothing about the sources uh, for Jesus that, uh, that exist. And so I shake my head and invite you to go read a book. Just get him something like Lee Strobel's book, uh, The Case for the Resurrection or The Case for Christ. And you, you realize, get, go read something because uh, when a person adopts that point of view, you can't even have a logical conversation. Um, one of the things I've been really proud of our people here at Door of Hope, especially in the last 12 months, is our invitational energy. Yeah. And uh, especially for our major events, our first major event was this morning, our um, Valentine's Day special, of course, with you as our, as our guest here. And people bringing friends along. And yesterday morning at uh, the men's breakfast, bringing friends along. We may have some people here tonight. I've brought a friend along. It's great to have you here. The question I have here, it reads like this. Have we got that on the screen? We can put it here. How do I invite my friends to church, for those people who may be still struggling a bit, um, without them thinking I'm enforcing my views upon them? Yeah, and that's a great question because that, that, is, that is not helpful. Um, in our over-eagerness, especially when something matters to us, in our over-eagerness, um, we can become a pain in the neck because... Um, people are, are just not at a place where what we're trying to share with them, they're, they're kind of in a place to even be able to, uh, to, to receive it. It seems to me that the most important thing is to just love people. And in loving people, 
to be able to relate to them and just um, connect in life. And that means meals, it means sport, it means gardening, it means taking care of kids and all of the different things that go on in life. And um, love is a decision. It's a decision to value someone or to esteem them and out of that to do no harm. From that to do only good. And when you do that, it means that you take the opportunities to build a relationship with people. Then in the process of relationship, just be, share who you are and what you do. And out of that, conversations have to arise. One of the reasons I play golf with a couple of pagans is simply because um, it's not easy because sometimes they, they kind of mock what I believe and that's fine. I think that's okay. I'm not that, that sensitive. But if I relate to these people, just like last week, there are going to be moments when life means a conversation takes place and I shared with them that funeral that I went to and I saw the look in that friend, that guy's eyes and for the first time we got past the mockery and I saw his heart. He, he's, he hurts. He's hurt over the distress in the world, like most people are. And he doesn't know how to reconcile. Now, if I stay close to him, there's going to be a, a, a moment when we do have a conversation mm -hmm. and I'll share with him a life experience or, or, or an encounter which will help him to begin to think through what Jesus might want to say to him. And my encouragement to you is just don't give up on friendships and don't give up on people and, and, and don't be trying to manipulate. But there, when things come up, then don't be, don't be um, afraid to ask, hey, mate, what are you doing for Easter? Well, I don't know. Uh, what are you doing? Well, I'm going, we've got a great thing on at church. We're going to show a film. Have you ever, have you ever kind of seen a film? And you have those kind of conversations. And out of those conversations, some people will shut the door and say, oh, I'm not that interested. Well, that's okay. We'll just love them some more. But there, there are moments where people's hearts are being prepared because God loves them. He is there. He's overshadowing their lives. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not um, holding their trespasses against them. God in Christ can see every human being as a potential son or daughter. He knows they're messed up. That's not surprising. So he hovers over them, looking to make the most of opening their hearts to himself. And if you're there in those moments, just the simplest conversation can suddenly connect with what God is doing. And in those moments, the outcome is that people start a journey to faith. So just love people and stay close. Got three more questions. Realise time's moved on, but is this okay? Three more questions. Um, <clears throat> the question: Well, <clears throat> you're, you're well travelled. I've travelled uh, a few countries. Certainly, probably not as many as you. I just recently visited uh, New Zealand in January. Did a ministry over there and some travel with my family. Yeah. And New Zealand's got a different culture to that of Australia. Um, you go to India, of course. You mentioned India. It's a, a completely different culture over there. The Philippines, completely. Okay. So each country has a different culture. One of the big things that stands out in our culture here in Australia is, 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 is around this next question, and the question is this. Is it wrong or a sin to get drunk? Yeah. Well, um, it goes to the... This, this, of course, goes to the core of uh, people being loving, relating well, and not only loving others, but loving themselves. And... Because the, the issue of drunkenness is that you get so you get to a state where you just lose the capacity to exercise 
grace and kindness and um, self-control and behave like a human being rather than an animal. And uh, whenever we yield ourselves to our lusts or our passions or even our hurts to the place where we give up our humanity and embrace the behaviour of an animal, we're just degrading ourselves. And you want to call it a sin? Of course it's a sin. I mean, there's a million things you can call a sin. But, it's, it, it, but it's, it's a, it is an, a behaviour that does not reflect our origins as children of God. And as a result, you need to say that would be a good thing not to keep doing. Mm. It would just be a really good thing not to keep doing. Let's go to the next one. I'm seeking guidance on remaining faithful in marriage and sexuality. Yeah. And again, this is worth a whole night. Um, out in the foyer, um, the, the book I wrote called From Good Man to Valiant Man, that's the core of that book. The, the reality is that um, God in his grace has created gender, male and female, and he created sex for a purpose. Sex is exciting and it's, uh, and it's got chemistry and feelings and stuff attached to it that give people a little chance to kind of draw nearer to what feels like heaven. Orgasm is kind of like my little foretaste of heaven. Um, God says, I created that, but I created it not for self-indulgence or as an entertainment package. I created that for a covenant relationship called marriage. Now, one of the reasons I wrote that book is because sexual desire and sexual passion, especially in today's world, um, is being treated as if it's an entertainment package. And one of my primary rights as a human being is to, is to enjoy that package as often and in any context that I think is appropriate. And God says, no, that's not true, mate, because you didn't create this, I did. And I created it for marriage, and I'm asking you not to use your sex life as an entertainment package. I'm asking you to use it in, the, in an appropriate relationship, and that is in the commitment of a man to a woman all the days of their life. Now, in order to pull that off, in order to have that be, be the way your life unfolds, you really do need a mindset about sex. And you then need to develop something called self-control. In other words, one of, the thrills of, one of the privileges of being a human being is that you have a spirit on the inside, which means I can will and I do not have to respond to every impulse that my physical frame casts my way. I may like your car, but my, my spirit says, Thou shalt not steal, though I may like your car, I walk away from it and I don't take it for myself just because I, I would like to have it. The same is true in, in every area of our appetites. And one of the things that um, men and women do need to develop if they're going to have a successful life is a theology about sex and then the appropriate capacity to exercise will to make choices about how passions are, are uh, exercised in a way that matches what's true. Now, we live in a world that hasn't got a clue what's true about sex. And as a result, if you were to come from another planet and watch what goes on in Western civilization, 
you'd come to the conclusion that sex must be the meaning of life. And the idea, the purpose of life is to have as many orgasms as you can before you die. Well, God says I've got a different viewpoint and part of developing a healthy life is to understand God's perspective on sex and then to begin to develop the strength in one's spirit to choose what is true and to modify one's behaviour. Lust doesn't get to sit in the driver's seat. Truth and uh, character gets to sit in the driver's seat. And as a result, I wrote that book because I, I took over a church I led for 26 years because of the adultery of the previous minister. Previous minister got a passion for the church secretary and decided that if he had a passion, he ought to pursue it. And I watched the damage that that did to his own wife, to his own five kids, and to a group of people who were following him. Um, for, the, for the last 50 years, I've been watching what happens when sex is misused. And as a result, I've just tried to help people to get a, uh, a vision for life in which sex is, um, we understand the role that sex is intended to play and develop the character in order to, to manage that well. And that's at the core of uh, learning to marriage sex well in marriage as well. Mm, excellent. Okay, final question. This is a big one. Is God homophobic, Alan? Um, God's quite clear on why he created gender and God's quite clear on the way gender and sexual desire ought to be expressed. Um, if, if God was quick to judge sexual sin, none of us would stand because there's not one of us in the room that doesn't experience elements of our sexuality that emerges either in feelings or impulses or a fantasy life or behaviour patterns that uh, simply don't honour um, God. God does not desire sex to be used uh, male with male and female with female and he doesn't desire sex to be used between male and female inappropriately. Remember Sir Rogers saying this really well. You've got to understand that with sex, God has both a design and a purpose. Now, if there is anything that is obvious about sex, God designed sex to be heterosexual. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and stick to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's the design of sex. It's designed for male and female. The purpose of sex, however, is not any male with any female. The purpose of sex, however, is for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and stick to his wife. So the design of sex is heterosexual and the purpose of sex is marriage. Now, if you can embrace those two things, what about all the other people in the world who, are, who have sexual desires and sexual passions? Well, God asks you to honour what's true, even if it creates a pressure in your life. God asks you to honour what's true, even if it isn't easy. And that means that God calls us in our singleness to celibacy. Um, Australians today would be outraged. They're outraged at that. How dare you say a thing like that? Well, I'm just telling you, this is God's perspective. God expects that's the design is heterosexual. The purpose is marriage. Now, God's not homophobic about it. He knows 
that men and women don't manage their sex life uh, perfectly like they don't manage any of their life perfectly. And that's why we need God to be in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing our trespasses against us. Because if God was to mark our iniquities, none of us would stand. But the bottom line is this, God is not excited, nor is he approving of homosexual uh, unions. And so if you decide to do it, just like if someone wants an adulterous or a fornicating union, uh, you need to know that it, God's not approving of that. Now, does it mean he's going to uh, immediately judge you? No, but if you persist for a lifetime and you, you die having never resolved the fact that your sex life is not the Lord of your life, but Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, then it could cost you everything. Just like the misuse of your money or the misuse of your appetites in any area um, can alienate you from God because you think that that's the most important thing. The key to becoming a Christian is to realize that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, one day a rich man, young man came to Jesus and said, you know, what do I need to do to inherit an eternal life? And at the end of the discussion, Jesus said, sell everything you got and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And the Bible says he went away very sad because uh, Jesus wasn't going to be his Lord. His money was his captain. The captain of his salvation was his finance. And Jesus was sad, but he let him go. And every one of us, all the days of our life, can be confronted with one question. Who is the captain of your life? Your sex life is not the Lord of your life. Jesus asks us to bring our sex life and submit it to Jesus, just like every other area of our life. He's not homophobic, but it matters to God that you submit your sex life to the leadership of Jesus. Yeah, well, that uh, brings us to a conclusion. There's been some tough questions, but some great answers. I think you would agree? And um, we've worked you hard this weekend, you and Helen, and um, you know, we're thankful for your time with us yesterday morning, yesterday afternoon, this morning, and tonight. We always are very, very thankful for your ministry. I've been on the receiving end. Many people here tonight have been on the receiving end. There's still some that we really encourage to get into man-to-man or woman-to-woman uh, that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. And uh, we run a number of their courses here at Door of Hope, and you're more than welcome to, uh, to see Alan and uh, Helen at their, the uh, table in the foyer after tonight. Uh, service, but um, I really see you and Helen as spiritual, uh, a spiritual father and mother in our nation, and now, of course, across the nations, and we need people like you, uh, you know, in, in our lives, in our churches, and in our world, and we thank you for the world of difference that you are both making here and across the globe. Once again, can we thank, thank Alan you. and Helen Mine? Thank you.